Is it winnable? That's the question. Is it winnable? It's a question that must be asked before entering into a war. Is a likely outcome worth the sacrifice? Is it worth the turmoil, the expense, the bloodshed? And it's a question that needs to be asked again or revisited as a war progresses. This is why our country in 1973 pulled out of the war in Vietnam. Winning seemed like an elusive option or outcome. So despite our country's already extensive investment, it wasn't worth the continued expense or bloodshed. I personally entered into a war of sorts a few weeks ago. Not with a gun in my hand, but with a keyboard. Fighting with an online retailer via their customer service email address. As a typical male, I did my Christmas shopping last minute and was scrolling through Facebook. This is a mistake, by the way. And um, saw this beautiful sweater. Let me show you a picture of it. And this beautiful, I was like, man, Meredith would probably love that because it looks cozy, it looks warm. Click, buy, done. Well, go ahead and leave that picture up there. Um, it's a nice looking sweater. This is what came. Um, it resembles it. But not that closely. Um, it's a lot cheaper looking, like it might have been made in a sweatshop somewhere. You know why? Because it was likely made in a sweatshop somewhere. Um, anyway, that came, and I, I looked at the paperwork that came with it and um, looked up their website, um, free returns for 30 days. Okay, good. That's what I thought I saw when I clicked on this. And so I reached out to the only way that provided to reach out, which was their email address for a return shipping label because I wanted to send this thing back. To which I received the response, we don't offer returns, all sales final. To which I responded, but your website says free returns within 30 days. To which they replied, only if there is quality problem in broken English. To which I responded, this is most definitely a quality problem. <laughs> to which they responded, the best we can do is give you $11 refund. You kindly keep the item. To which I responded, no, I want to return this item for a full refund. My wife's embarrassed to wear it. <laughs> to which they responded, we don't offer returns, all sales final. To which I responded, but your website says free returns within 30 days. To which they responded, only if there is quality problem. <laughs> and I began to put some two and two together here. Okay, I'm getting a different person every time I contact. And I have been scammed. After about 25 emails, back and forth. I finally got somebody to give me a return address, but they would not provide a shipping label. Guess where this address was? Dubai. 
So I looked up how much it was going to cost. They, they said, we, we will give you your money back if you return it to us, and, which wasn't what their website said. But um, I, I looked up how much it was going to cost to mail it back to Dubai, about $50. And so I had spent a little bit more than that on the sweater, but I was like, I, I don't think I can trust them. So if I spend $50, I'm not even sure if I'm going to see all of my money back. So forget it. The war was not winnable. So even after I had invested my money and then a significant amount of my time fighting their customer service department, I gave up and pulled out of the war, having learned my lesson about doing my shopping on Facebook ads. Bad idea. But it does make me feel better that I at least get to use it for a sermon illustration. (laughs) As we continue our series through the book of Daniel, which we've given the subtitle, The Unshakable Kingdom. Have you ever given up on something because the odds of a favorable outcome seemed so slim? It didn't seem worth the continued effort. The original Jewish audience of the book of Daniel had to feel similarly. As we have learned in our study of Daniel, the Babylonian empire had crushed Their autonomy carried them off into exile. The city walls and the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed. Hope seemed like wishful thinking. It felt like God had forsaken them, turned his back on them. It felt like these pagan kingdoms, Babylon was all powerful. Hope for the future, freedom, shalom, peace back in the promised land seemed like an elusive dream, completely out of reach. And as they saw the events of their life unfold, they had to begin questioning God. They had to begin questioning God's promise that he would use them to bless the world. Are we giving our lives for an unwinnable war? They must have thought. Maybe we should just give up. Maybe God doesn't care about us. Maybe God really isn't in control after all. Maybe our worship of him is futile and we're just wasting our time. How many of you have ever had thoughts like that as a Christian? Okay, quite a few. Some of you weren't brave enough to raise your hand. That's okay. Are we giving our lives to an unwinnable war? Maybe your life hasn't turned out exactly how you had planned. Is following Jesus really worth it? Will he come back like he said he would? Is he really in control? Is he really king of the universe? With all the brokenness that we see in our lives and all around us in this world, is worshiping Jesus just a waste of our time? As Christians, are we the naive people in the world who are in an unwinnable war, foolishly giving our lives for a battle and for a cause that is unjustified because of conditions on the ground? In spite of all we've invested Should we just pull out now and give up? If you can relate with questions like that, I think you're going to be profoundly encouraged by Daniel chapter 7 today. Where Daniel is going to give his original audience and us a sneak peek into the future. A future where the war has already been won and, spoiler alert, we're on the right team. Here's a good summary of the message of Daniel 7. So if you want to just read this, take a screenshot of it with your phone, or a shot of it with your phone, um, you can sleep for the rest of the message. 
Um, but here's, here's Daniel 7 in a nutshell. Throughout history, kings and kingdoms opposed to God are going to rise and fall. But God is on the throne. And he's going to give the lasting kingdom to the Son of Man and those who trust him. Now, most churches that do a sermon series through the book of Daniel quit right here. Right after Daniel in the lion's den in chapter 6. All the good historical fun stories are over. And now it gets really weird. Okay, things start getting a little bit confusing. Um, As we read Daniel 7, you'll know why most people pull out at this point. Okay, that's because we're entering into the prophetic and apocalyptic section of Daniel. Um, Ryan and I were were commiserating with each other like, why did we choose this book this week? You know, we're looking at what's coming up in the next chapters and we're like, oh, man, this is going to be hard. Um, We'll get through it. Apocalyptic literature in the Bible seeks to enlighten discouraged and beat down people of God with a vision of the God who will come and impose his kingdom on the wreckage and rebellion of human history. And this this prophetic apocalyptic literature communicates this message through just wild, bizarre, strange, imaginative, scary, downright head-scratching imagery. So if we were to quit with Daniel chapter 6, we wouldn't have to wade through this bizarre head-scratching imagery, but we'd miss out on some profound encouragement from God to his people. Deeply discouraged people wondering if they were in an unwinnable war. Maybe that's exactly what we need to hear this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open to Daniel chapter 7. We're going to Jump in with verse 1. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. Um, We have the words up on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, please take one as our gift to you from the connect point in back. There's several spread out there. Here we go. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I told you this was going to be strange, okay? Here we go. Hang with me. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Verse 8. And behold, I'm sorry, not verse 8, verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that's speaking great things. Okay, time out. Let's stop there. Lions and leopards and bears, oh my. This is confusing. Don't worry. We'll get through this together. There's two things I I want you to notice right here at the beginning. First, Daniel records that he received this vision in the first year of Belshazzar. Who's Belshazzar? 
Not Belteshazzar, that's Daniel's nickname, or Babylonian name. Belshazzar, who, where did we meet him? A couple chapters ago, Daniel chapter 5. He succeeded Nebuchadnezzar in the throne in Babylon. Daniel records he received this vision in the first year of Belshazzar. That's um, the guy, remember, who saw the handwriting on the wall. He Probably the first year of his reign would have been 553 B.C. So this vision occurs while Babylon is still large and in charge, 14 years before the Medo-Persian Empire conquered Babylon on that night where the handwriting was on the wall. So this isn't chronological. We're going back in time a little bit to Daniel's vision here. Secondly, this vision parallels Nebuchadnezzar's dream over in chapter 2. These chapters are linked together in the chiastic structure that we've pointed out several times as we've gone along. And if you recall, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, in chapter 2, he saw a statue or an image made up of four metals. Gold, silver, bronze, iron. Each of these elements represented a different kingdom. Well, something very similar is happening here in chapter 7. Except instead of four different metals, we have four different beasts that also represent four different kings or kingdoms that are coming. Down in verse 17, how do I know that? Well, down in verse 17, which we'll get to, we read this. These four beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Now, some cultural and historical background can help us here with the interpretation of this vision. For instance, if I were to tell you that I had a vision last night of a blue donkey and a red elephant... Attacking each other for the right to serve under the banner of the bald eagle. And then I saw a blue donkey rise up and eat the red elephant. You could interpret my dream. Well, Mark, it's an election year, and the Democrats won. Well, in similar fashion, we have some cultural and historical hindsight clues that help us identify these beasts and interpret this passage. The first beast is like a lion that had eagle's wings. We know with a high degree of confidence that this beast represents the Babylonian Empire, which was in power at the time that this vision was received. The prophet Jeremiah compared Babylon in his writings to both a lion and an eagle, a lion symbolizing strength and majesty, an eagle symbolizing the ability to attack swiftly. In Daniel's vision, the wings on this lion are plucked off and the beast becomes like a man foreshadowing that Babylon is going to weaken in power and become mortal, so to speak, which happens during Daniel's lifetime. The second beastly kingdom is represented by a bear that's raised up on one side. It's an out-of-balance bear, okay? One side is stronger than the other, and it has three ribs in its mouth. This is a prophetic description of the Medo-Persian Empire which conquered the Babylonian Empire, also in Daniel's lifetime, but he received this vision before that happened. The Persian side of the empire was stronger than the Median side of the empire, hence the out-of-balance bear. Okay? The empire not only conquered Babylon, but also Lydia and western Turkey and Egypt. How many kingdoms did it conquer? Three. How many ribs are in its mouth? Three. That's most likely what that means. But notice that this beast's power is limited. It's under control. It was told to rise up and devour much flesh. We see here that even this powerful beast, this Medo-Persian empire, is simply doing the bidding of a higher power that's calling the shots. And then we come to the third beast, a four-headed leopard with wings. 
Let me ask you a question. How many of you think you can outrun a leopard? Okay. None of us. Let alone a leopard with wings. Not a chance. This is an extremely quick and agile beast. This third beast is a prophetic description or depiction of the empire of Greece. Alexander the Great took over the world in a historically fast manner. It took him only 10 years to conquer more territory than any other previous empire in world history. The four heads likely symbolize the empire's ambition to conquer the four corners of the earth. The four wings signify the ability to do it quickly. But notice again the phrase in verse 6 that dominion was given to this beast. This kingdom, Greece, had authority, yes, but it's a given authority. There's a higher power at play. Finally, in verse 7, we come to the last beast, and this beast is hideous, is different, we're told. It's not compared to a known animal. It's incredibly destructive, has ten horns, and then one little horn that arrives and grows, I guess, on its head and plucks up three other horns. And this little horn has eyes like a man, showing intelligence, and a mouth that speaks great things, showing arrogance. You put those two things together, intelligence and arrogance, you have a dangerous combination. Many have attempted to say that this beast represents Rome or the Roman Empire, since that is the empire that comes next in world history, which may be partially accurate in its interpretation. But what we know of the Roman Empire can't fully encompass everything that's described here which means that although Rome could be part of what is in view here, this beast likely still has some sort of future fulfillment to it, which we haven't yet experienced in human history, of which the Roman Empire could have just been the beginning. Daniel's going to ask for clarification about this fourth beast a little bit later in our passage, so hold on to that thought for now, okay? Now, I know all of this is rather confusing, maybe even a little bit frightening with the imagery, But I want us to pause right here and make an observation, one observation and one application. We're going to do this three times as we go along. Here's observation number one, followed by application number one. Observation number one, God is ruling, say this out loud with me. God is ruling history, not these hideous beasts, not these kingdoms that come and go. God is ruling history, not these hideous beasts. It's abundantly clear that God's plan is unfolding. He's allowing these kingdoms to exercise authority. They're his hand puppets in history. He's calling the shots. How do we know? Because he's revealing these things to his people through Daniel before they even happen. A lot of people have questioned the historicity of Daniel because of this, but it's coming at the text with an anti-supernatural bias. He said this had to be written much later because of how specific these prophecies are and that nobody could know ahead of time what's going to go on. Newsflash, God can And he can reveal his plan to his people, which he has done here. Application number one. Say this with me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God is ruling history. Don't be afraid. As was intended for the original audience, this passage, this vision, this dream is meant to bolster our confidence in God, not stoke our fear. God is telling us what is going to happen before it happens. God occupies the higher throne and the kingdom of this world will not have the kingdoms of this world will not have the final say. And if we see God in control on a large scale like this, 
How much more is he able to control the smaller circumstances of our everyday lives? For our good, for his glory. Even the things that aren't good in and of themselves. Don't be afraid. God's got this. Okay, let's notice what Daniel catches a glimpse of next in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. God shows up. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court set in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked, then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking... And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So Daniel clearly sees a picture of God ruling on the throne. And what does he call God here? What did he call him? The ancient of days. Beastly kingdoms are, ter- are temporal. They come and go, but the eternal king, the ancient of days, rules on the throne that really counts. And notice that this throne has wheels. Isn't that interesting? It's not limited to one location. His dominion has no limits. God goes with his people wherever they go. Daniel sees a stream of fire coming from the throne 10,000 times 10,000 serving the ancient of days. Most likely a reference to the angelic hosts. The overall picture here is of unparalleled, unmatchable, unimaginable power, majesty, and authority. With the supreme ability to judge. Yes, the beasts have power. But the power of the ancient of days is on an exponential level. Power that's over and above anything we could imagine. In Daniel's vision, God proceeds to kill the fourth beast. Takes dominion away from the rest of the beasts or the kingdoms. Although there's a hint given here that their influence is allowed to linger for a while, for a season and a time. But since ultimate dominion has been taken away from these beasts, these kingdoms, who is it going to be given to? Well, we're about to find out. In verse 13, and right here at the center of our chapter, don't miss this, right here at the center of our chapter, we meet the central figure in all of human history. Let's look at it. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud, clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. It's unshakable. Right here is one of the most significant passages in all of Scripture. I'm glad I got to preach this one, Ryan. And if if this doesn't give you goosebumps, I don't know what will. Daniel sees somebody coming with the clouds. What What is that? Well, that signifies deity in prophetic literature. 
the prophet Isaiah speaks of the Lord, Yahweh, as riding on a swift cloud. But surprisingly, this deity comes, that comes on the clouds is like what? A son of man, a human. The phrase son of man is used throughout the book of Ezekiel, the prophetic book of Ezekiel, to refer to someone who is just that, the son of a man. But here in Daniel 7, this one who is like a son of man, a human, is also divine because he is coming with the clouds. Who is this? You can give the Sunday school answer. Okay. What did Jesus call himself over and over and over again throughout the Gospels? Son of man. Why? He's identifying himself in light of Daniel's vision. Referring to himself, Jesus said that the Son of Man must suffer many things. When he was on trial before the high priest, he was asked point blank, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Later, the Apostle John, referencing Daniel in Revelation 1, says of the risen Jesus, behold, he is coming with the clouds. What does all this mean? What's the significance? Well, well, over 500 years before Jesus comes onto the scene, through Daniel's vision, God prepares the world for someone who is like a son of man, who has an exalted divine status. God specifically and purposely and graciously prepares the world for who? Jesus. And those looking for him can easily connect the prophetic dots. But Daniel doesn't have the benefit of looking back on history like we do. And he has some serious questions, which he begins bringing up in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there, likely an angel, and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. But the saints, I like this verse, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Before we go on, let me pause to make another application, observation, and application. Here's Observation number two, Jesus, the Son of Man, is a central figure in history to whom all dominion will be given. Would you say that out loud with me? Jesus is the central figure in history to whom all dominion will be given. He is above all these kingdoms that come and go. We've seen in Daniel's vision that he's more powerful than any of these frightening beasts. So application number two is this. Don't give up. Say that out loud with me as well. Don't give up. If you're with Jesus, you're on the winning team. Not only is Jesus given dominion, that dominion will be shared with us, these verses make clear. You and I will receive the unshakable kingdom with Jesus and possess it forever, forever, and ever. So even when the unexpected hits, things seem to be going to hell in a handbasket around us and in our lives. Hang on. Don't give up. Live with confidence that Jesus wins in the end. You're with him, and he's with you. But Daniel still has more questions. Verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast. Well, don't we all? (laughs) 
<laughs> which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. Verse 20. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth and spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. So Daniel has a lot of questions that I have too. Verse 21, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. Referencing the destructive little horn that we met earlier that plucked up the other three. He shall be different from the former ones. He shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Speaking of times, time out. <laughs> What on earth is going on here? If you find out, let me know. Um, <laughs> no. Is this referencing ev events that have already happened? Is it something that's yet to come? Quick answer, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I can make some postulations. I, I, I tend to lean towards a futuristic interpretation of this passage, that this hasn't happened or completely happened yet in world history. And this arrogant, blasphemous, destructive horn is probably a future earthly ruler that, would, that could be the Antichrist or, or the man of lawlessness that's referenced in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Perhaps it's the first beast in Revelation 13 in apocalyptic literature where we see some more beasts there. Perhaps both. But while there are a bunch of ways that we could interpret this passage and theologians have tried, believe me, let me pause right here and give you a, a, a helpful tip, and that's this. Read this with me. Prophecy in apocalyptic literature was primarily written so that we will have confidence in God as his plans unfold. That's the purpose. It's meant to encourage us. Here's what it's not meant to do. It's not meant to give us specific answers to every detailed question we might have. When it comes to prophecy, there are some things we should hold with a closed hand. Jesus wins. We can hold on to that tightly. We can be certain about that. God is in control. Closed hand. But there are many things that we should hold with an open hand, like the identity of this little horn and the timing of when he comes on the scene. Because if we try to figure out every little detail and attempt to stuff everything into the closed hand, it'll lead us down the path of hiding in our basements, surrounded by ammo boxes and pallets of canned goods, with prophecy charts taped up on the walls and doing calculations with a solar-powered flashlight on the number 666. <laughs> but that's never the way God intended his people to live. We are not to live in fear but in confidence that God is in total control of world history. Prophecy tells us everything we need to know in order to respond in faithfulness as we live in this broken world. 
but not everything we might want to know about every detail. At some point, it's going to be made plain. At some point, we may know the exact identity of this arrogant, blasphemous, and destructive little horn in this passage. But for now, let's hold it with an open hand and trust that God is bigger. And he will take away its dominion. And we are his. So, observation number three. Read this out loud with me. Things will likely get worse before they get better. Things will likely get worse before they get better. It's clear that this horn, whoever it is, is going to make things very difficult for the saints of the Most High. Application number three. But keep calm and carry on. Say that with me. Keep calm, with a British accent. Keep calm and carry on. God's got this. He's bigger than whoever this arrogant and blasphemous ruler is, and God has us in his hands as our passage goes on to say, verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion, that of this arrogant ruler, shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to who? The people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom, referring to the Son of Man, shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. I would too if I saw those beasts in a dream. (laughs) But I kept the matter in my heart. That brings us to the end of the chapter. That's quite the vision that Daniel received from God. He felt the weight of it. His color changed, and the blood drained from his face, in other words. Wow. This is heavy. But he kept the matter in his heart, and he recorded it here for us so that we could find comfort in knowing who is in control, with a capital W, who is in control of human history, and trust him as his plan unfolds. As the worship team makes their way back up, my friends, here are takeaways in summary. Say these out loud with me. Don't be afraid. Don't give up. Keep calm and carry on. God doesn't want us hiding in fear while we wait for the Son of Man to return, riding on the clouds. He wants us to courageously engage in love, knowing that our eternal future is secure. My friends, we are not in an unwinnable war. The war has already been won, and if you are with Jesus, the exalted and mighty Son of Man, you are on the winning side. So what type of lives should we live? We should live confident, faithful, even risk-taking lives for the unshakable kingdom that we are guaranteed to inherit along with the rest of the saints. Don't be afraid. Don't give up. Keep calm and carry on as you serve as conduits of the gospel to where you live, work, learn, and play. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this prophecy from your word that was given to Daniel before any of these events even happened. That gives us such assurance that you're in control of all things, even the small details of our life. Lord, we read this and we know we can trust you as as Brett read earlier, that command from Proverbs, 
that you give us to trust in you with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you, trusting that you're going to make our path straight. Not necessarily, not necessarily smooth, but straight. So Lord, when things shake us in this life as they will in a broken world, may we rest in the bedrock. May we put our faith in the bedrock truth that you are the ancient of days. You are in total control. And the Son of Man is going to be coming on the clouds, not as our judge, but as our friend. Lord, he will come as judge. We know that. We know that judgment needs to take place. But we so thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ who covers us the righteousness that has been given to us by grace through faith in the Son of Man. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray.